you know, it's a wonderful thing to see those signs up there. It's a great segue into what we want to talk about uh, in our time here this morning. Uh, think about the power of a sign. I mean, these people all just got up here, and none of them shared any words, mind you, at all verbally. No one said anything, but just by showing you some signs, you got it, right? You got what their lives are about and what God has done in their lives. And as many of you responded, there were some profound things that the Lord has done in the lives of many of our brothers and sisters in Christ here. Uh, signs really work that way. All of you experience that every day in your life. Just They're simple inventions, really, but they have the power to uh, tell us which way to go, which way to turn, what to do here, what to do there, with hardly using any words at all. And so, like, for instance, when you drive, give me a click here, guys. You know, you're used to these signs, right? Stop, yield, airport up ahead, windy road up ahead, bear to the right, uh, watch for bicycles, there shouldn't be any on this road, things of that nature. I mean, all of us are used to signs in our lives, and, and again, they're brilliant inventions when you think about it, just without hardly any words being able to direct us on the way to go. As I was researching this this week, uh, just the idea of signs, it hit me that not all signs are that way, however, that we do have the knack as fallen human beings to mess signs up today and make them even more complicated than they need to be. Have you ever noticed that? So let's have some fun with this for a minute. Give me another click. Like this sign. I mean, I saw this when I was researching at the BMV, you know, for signs, and I thought, who made this sign? I mean, look at that thing. If I saw that going down the road, I'd have no idea what to do. In fact, I'd probably have an accident looking at my watch trying to figure out what time is it exactly, you know. Or, or look at this next one. I love this one. This is an actual sign from someplace. This had to have been made by an engineer, right? I, I mean, you're going 60 miles an hour, and all of a sudden you see a sign that gives you four different speed limits that you need to go. And some of you engineer types right now are saying, what's wrong with that, right? Because you get it. I thought, how do you... And then this next sign is my absolute favorite, though. This is an actual sign somewhere. <laughs> and I thought, this had to be made by the county lawyer or something like that, right? You know, got to have a sign that says no signs, you know. And uh, signs really are an amazing thing. And, and, and so let that sink in for a minute, because you're going to see how this relates to something profoundly spiritual in a minute. There is something in life that we all experience that is wordless, and yet it communicates clearly and efficiently to us and even guides us on the way that we should go. Now, we are in the tail end of a study on 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. We have two more weeks left. And here's what Peter tells us next. This is profound, and it's our main point today, and now you're going to get it, and it's this. He tells us that actions speak louder than words, kind of like signs do. Actions speak louder than words, and it's a great way to share your faith with those around us, allowing your actions to speak louder than words. We're going to take a look in just a minute at the text that Peter has for us today. It's just two verses, and yet, as you're going to see, it's power-packed with some truth for us here this morning, or now maybe this afternoon, and almost this afternoon. And, and before we get to that, just for you rabid note-takers, i got to let you know that I changed my entire outline. Don't you love it when I do that? In fact, those three points that you see on your outline below the main point, just scratch them off. You're never going to know what the blanks were. Uh, because I, I, I tell you what I do is I go on my study breaks, and I do a cursory reading of the text, and because Scottsdale Bible needs my outlines like, you know, like a few days before I actually do the sermon to print them up and get them to you, um, I give my best shot at what I think I'm going to be saying about the text. 
but then I don't really start studying the text in depth, usually to like Thursday or Friday of many weeks, and I spent a couple days really holed up on my message. And so I got to Thursday and Friday this week, and I looked at my outline that was already printed, mind you, and I thought, what was I thinking on my study break? I mean, I don't think that that's really the, the, the best thing to say about this text. And I just said, well, they'll forgive me. They have to. They're Christians. And uh, so, you know, just don't worry about anything there. Look at what Peter says. You'll catch on as we go on. Look at what Peter says in verses 11 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's park here for a while in front of this text and focus on what Peter is saying to us. And, and here's what hit me this week, is that when you look very closely at this text, you're going to notice a, a pattern, some things that Peter puts together for us to do, us meaning followers of Jesus Christ, but then also intermingled in this is a pattern as well as what they, meaning those who don't know Christ yet, are going to do in response to what our lives are about. Look up on the screen here. I want to show you what I'm talking about. As far as I can tell, here's what Peter tells us to do here, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ. He says we are to do good and avoid evil, and this in and of itself, Peter says, is a powerful witness. That's what I think he's telling us here. We do good, we avoid evil, and in that is a powerful witness usable in the hands of God. Let me show you. Look at verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who don't know Christ, honorable. It's fascinating. That word conduct here refers to one's general or whole lifestyle. As one Bible expert says, it means a day-to-day -day pattern of life. And so it's the same word that Paul used in Galatians 1.13 when he says, for you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism. And then he goes on to talk about all the things that he did before he knew Christ. So he uses that same word to refer to his entire life, every aspect of his life, before he knew Christ. Peter's using it the same way, but he's using this word to talk now about how you and I and our life now, in the present. But please don't miss, he's referring to all of our life. And then when he adds those words honorable and good deeds here, it's clear that what he's talking about is the kind of conduct or lifestyle that permeates one's entire life, but it's the kind that is high in ethical standards and rich in love and deep in selflessness and consistent in service. I mean, don't miss this. He's writing about the kind of life that rises above the melee of this world the kind of life that causes people to turn in their heads and say, what's that about? I mean, it's the kind of conduct, for instance, that Billy Graham has been known for in years as he's gone into hotels and he unplugs a TV so he's not tempted by anything that he shouldn't be tempted by. Or it's the kind of conduct that Mother Teresa had in leaving her upper middle class environment to work among the poorest of poor in Calcutta. Or the kind of conduct that Ravi Zacharias demonstrates. Ravi is an Indian-born author and apologist for the Christian faith, and he's known for being a gentleman. I mean, kind and considerate to any and every person he meets, no matter what faith, religion, or worldview they might hold. So he's out there defending the Christian faith, but he's known for being so kind and considerate. You get the picture. Peter is saying, without words, simply live an honorable life, backed up by good deeds, and this will speak volumes all on its own. 
And then to make sure that we fully get and understand this, notice he tells us to not just have positive actions that do good, but then to also have protection-oriented actions, again wordless, that avoid things as well. Look at verse 11. He says to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now bear with me here. That word abstain is a fascinating word. I mean, it means what it says, that we need to abstain or avoid certain things. But its usage in the New Testament is kind of varied. And in other parts of the New Testament, it carries with it a sense that you abstain or avoid because you've already had enough of something, because you've had your fill already in certain areas. So, for instance, Jesus uses this word when he got down on the disciples for falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? And he says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. That word enough there, same word that we translate abstain here. He says it is enough. It's time for the Son of Man to be betrayed or to be, to be arrested. And so Jesus is basically saying, look, you've had enough rest. You've had enough comfort already right now. So pray, stay awake. And so could it be that what Peter is suggesting to us here, by his usage of this word, is simply saying something like this. You've had your fill of engaging in plenty of worldly and sinful activities that everyone else does. So put them aside. Do them no longer. Abstain. All they do is create a battle in your soul that vies for your attention, and it creates a terrible witness. So get these things out of your life. That's what he's saying. And what are these things that he's talking about? Well, again, Luke uses this word in Acts 15.20, this word abstain, to tell us to abstain from idols, anything that takes the place of God, as well as sexual immorality. That's kind of applicable today. Uh, Paul uses this same word in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 to tell us to abstain from every form of evil, which covers just about everything, doesn't it? You know, as I thought about it this week, I thought, I don't need to put a list up here of things that we're all to abstain from, because if I don't miss my guess, and it is such an intensely personal thing, you and I both know, personally for you, what things you struggle with and need to abstain from. Amen? I mean, if we were having a cup of coffee today, I said, give me your short list. Give me the things that you struggle with most that always seem to, to win the day over you. You'd have it, and you'd probably give it to me, and we'd pray about that. That's what Peter is getting at here. He's saying, think of your short list. Think of those things that always seem to trip up your witness, those things in which people look at your life and say, and you call yourself a Christian. You ever heard that before? He's saying, think of those things, and when you do, abstain. Avoid those things. And without words, he's saying, you will be sending a powerful message to those around you. So we do good. We avoid evil. And like road signs that are simple and wordless, those around us will read our lives, and they're going to begin to get the message. That's what Peter is saying. And this leads us then to the second major pattern that Peter gives us. So the first one is the we do good, we avoid evil, and it's a powerful witnessing. But as I mentioned to you, there's a second pattern here, however, that while we're doing our thing, those in the world, the, the onlooking world, those of our family and friends and co-workers and people in our sphere of influence that don't know Christ are going to be doing something as well. Look up here on the screen. This is what Peter says they're going to do. And that is that they're going to talk about us. They're going to see our actions. And in the end, they're going to be drawn to God. They're going to talk and yet they're talking, as we're going to see in a second, isn't going to be the most flowery, positive thing. And then they're going to see ongoingly our actions. And what Peter says to us here is that in the hands 
of a moving and powerful God, he's going to do something with that, like maybe draw them to himself. And before going any further, I just want you to notice the profundity of, of this pattern, this, this stuff that Peter is sharing with us here. I mean, for once, notice that we aren't the ones doing the talking. They are. Do you see that here? Peter never says in these passages, you guys talk. In fact, he says the opposite. Don't talk. Just act. And he says, as you do, they're going to talk. And he also says, hey, by the way, you don't need to point to your actions. You ever notice how Christians are always kind of pointing to their actions? We do this, we do that, we don't do this. He's saying, no, 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 you don't need to point to your actions. Just avoid evil. And guess what? They're going to see. I mean, what hit me about this text is that, the, is that Peter never uses the words talk or see about us. They're the ones who are supposed to do the talking and the seeing. He says we're to do the avoiding and the doing of good. Don't miss that pattern, that process or plan that Peter is laying out here. Uh, so how does this work? Uh, check this out. Initially, Peter is saying because they, meaning our unsaved family and friends, aren't saved and haven't found Christ yet, Peter says that initially they're going to be threatened by your good deeds and lifestyle and they might talk ill about you and that you should expect this. That's what he's saying. They feel guilty about their own sin. They don't understand the call of God on their lives. They think that morality and good deeds are just a joy kill. And so they make fun of us and will ridicule the life that we live. That's the initial response, Peter is saying, that lost people will have when confronted by a follower of Christ. And what you simply need to know, folks, is, boy, is this ever born true in our lives and down through the ages. I mean, there hasn't been one age of, of, of followers of Jesus, not one a uh, group of followers in history that we've been able to point to that haven't received some sort of ridicule or persecution because of their good and honorable following of Christ. Not one. So, for instance, in the early church, when Peter was first writing these words, the outside believing community didn't understand half of what they were doing, and they received a lot of ridicule for what they did. Stuff today that you and I take for granted. You're saying, like what? Well, this is true historical fact. Back in the first century, one of the things they accused the early church of was of being incestuous, of engaging in incest with each other. And you say, my gosh, how could they come up with that? Well, they called each other brother and sister in the early church. And they greeted each other, as they say in the end of this book we're studying, with a holy kiss. And so as a result of that, you and I know those are benign things and those are things that just happen in the community of faith. No, they thought that that was weird and strange. It was counterculture in the first century. And they ridiculed for them for that. The second thing they did is they actually thought that early Christians back then were carnivorous. They called them carnivores. You go, where does that come from? Well, they ate the body and blood of Jesus Christ during communion, which we're going to celebrate here in just a little bit. And this was way before any theology was really developed. Christianity had just shown up on the scene. And when they heard that they partake of the body and blood of Christ, they didn't see that as symbolic. They thought they were really doing that. And they were also known for being uh, seditionists back then, people that kind of went against culture and made a mess of culture. You say, how could they interpret that? Well, their Christian faith went against the public morality of their day, as ours should at times today. And they were accused of being disturbers of the peace. Don't miss this, folks. The first century and early church was constantly being ridiculed and persecuted for their behavior, for people misunderstanding their good deeds and who they were in Christ. 
And you look down through the centuries, you see this repeated over and over and over again. You ever heard of the Quakers, the, the Quaker that came out of the Reformation religion, or the Reformation of Christianity? I mean, the Quakers were a persecuted group of people. Why? Because they were pacifists. They didn't believe in engaging in war. So they were seen as being anti-nationalistic by their culture in Western Europe and persecuted heavily for their Christian faith. During Jonathan Edwards' 18th century revival here in America, or, yeah, in America, it was, a, it was a powerful time of revival and yet also of people misunderstanding what God was doing. They looked at that revival and they saw some people being slain in the Spirit and moved in the Spirit, and they said, these people are crazy. They didn't understand. And then even in our last century, some of you lived through this, the time of the Scopes monkey trials and fundamentalists being ridiculed and called anti-intellectual and mindless idiots because they refused to accept Darwinian evolution and other modernist claims. I mean, listen, folks, a fallen world, not walking with God and Christ and not having the same value or belief system that we hold, will not initially stand up and applaud. They won't get it. And they will balk and ridicule and even persecute followers of Christ. It's the initial response Peter wants us to see. And though you and I live in a much more friendly country than much of the examples I've been giving you, suffice it to say that we're not immune to this either. People aren't going to understand us if we're truly following Christ. I can remember early on experiencing this as a young follower of Jesus. As I told many of you, I became a Christian way back in 1981 when I was just leaving high school and entering into college. And as I've also told you, I had a pretty radical conversion to Christ where I uh, had been kind of going down this road with a lot of partying and decadence and all that. And then, boom, God grabbed a hold of my heart and, and immediately I was turned toward him. And I'll never forget my very first New Year's Eve as a follower of Jesus. I was home from college my freshman year, and I was with all my high school buddies. Now, you got to remember, my high school buddies and I used to do, what, a lot of partying together. And on this particular night, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and we were playing pool at one of my friends' house, just having a good time. And all of a sudden, one of them said, hey, it's about time we head over to Damien's house. Now, I knew what they were going to do at Damien's house. Could you guess what they were going to do at his house? And that is they're going to start opening up a lot of beers and doing a lot of partying and doing the things that just my faith was not about anymore. And, and, and I also knew as a follower of Christ up to that point that though Jesus wanted me to hang around with tax collectors and sinners because that's what he did, I also knew that Jesus didn't go around collecting taxes with them and sinning with them. Do we all understand the distinction, right? So even as an early follower of Christ, I knew God wanted me with these people, but he did not want me engaging in sin with them. So I said to them, hey guys, you know what, let's do something different this year. Let's just stay here and play pool and maybe watch that big ball come down on TV. And they looked at me like I was a mindless idiot. I mean, they looked at me like I was from Mars. They said, we're not doing that, Jamie. We're going to Damien's house. I said, I can't go. They said, bye. I learned who my friends were real quick back then. I remember walking into my house in Chagrin Falls at 10.30 on New Year's Eve. My dad's reading the newspaper. He looks up, he goes, what are you doing home? I said, well, my friends all want to do this. I'm not doing this stuff anymore. And he kind of just shook his head. He didn't get it, and I went up to my bedroom. And there I am sitting in my bedroom. And you got to remember, this was the days before cable TV, before Xbox, and before computers, right? 
And I don't know if you all remember this, but we had these little boxes that, that didn't have any video on them called radios. How many of you remember radios back then, right? So I, I, I picked up my radio and I turned to the only Christian station then in all of Cleveland, WCRF, it was a Moody station, and it was playing um, from a conference live in Chicago, actually Urbana, Illinois, uh, called the Urbana Conference that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship put on every three years. And there I sat for the next hour and a half listening to Christian speakers, listening to people sing hymns that I didn't get because I'd only listened to Kiss and the Rolling Stones and all that other stuff up to that point. And, and, and I'm thinking, what's my life come to? I mean, a year ago, I'm partying, having fun. Now I'm sitting here being driven by purpose and peace and joy and loneliness. And I thought, how does all that fit together? I knew that God had me where I wanted because I was doing good. I was avoiding things I knew he didn't want me to be about. And I knew he was using that as a witness. But I had, for the first time in my life, don't miss this, I had bumped up against that first thing in Peter's plan, or his process, and that is that others aren't going to applaud to that. Others are going to leave me. They're not going to be happy. They're going to talk about me. I mean, i got to believe that, that the discussion on the way to Damien's house went something like this. Can you believe Rasmussen? I mean, what a teetotaler he's become. I mean, what's he going to do? Become a pastor someday? Little did they know. I mean, I got ridiculed. They didn't get it. Many of your friends don't get it. Don't be surprised by that. Peter, just a chapter earlier, begins it by saying, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal you're having to deal with, as if something strange was happening to you. This isn't strange. We live in a fallen world. And when you decide to walk with God in a fallen world, they're not going to initially stand up and say, way to go. They don't get it. And that's okay, because God's not done yet. Notice with me that Peter goes on to point out that over time, in due course, as they begin to, and I quote, see your good deeds, end quote, he says they will start to get it. And he says that some will even be led to glorify God on the day of visitation. Now pause right there. What do you think it means when Peter says glorify God on the day of visitation? I'll tell you this much, it's not clear. I mean, commentators and Bible experts bicker over this like left and right as to what this really means. They don't understand, and it's not clear what, what Peter is saying here. A couple of options. First, some Bible experts take this to mean that when these people die, they will appear before the judgment seat of God and then realize who was right and give glory to God right before they go to spend an eternity without God. That's what some people take this to mean. In other words, it's referring to the final judgment when God will separate the sheep from the goats, those that know him and those that don't, and those that know him go to spend eternity with him and those that don't, don't. And it's saying that just before they go off to that, they're going to give glory to God and say, you were right. The only problem with this interpretation is that this phrase here, day of visitation, is only used one other time in the Bible to refer to God's judgment, and that's in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3. And it's not referring to a final judgment, it's referring to a temporal judgment, this side of heaven for Israel. And as if this were not enough, what further complicates this judgment interpretation is that that word glorify there, focus on that which occurs some 60 times in the New Testament, get this, never refers to unbelievers glorifying God after they die. And in fact, it never refers to it that way. In fact, Revelation 16, 9 tells us the opposite, that when unbelievers die and appear at that judgment seat, they are not going to be glorifying God. It says that directly. 
And so I don't think that this judgment interpretation is what Peter is after here. And so as a result of this, what many Bible experts believe this day of visitation is simply referring to is that on that day when God visits an unbeliever is the day that that unbeliever trusts in Christ for salvation because it's on that day that he or she will give God glory. In other words, it's a salvific act that Peter is talking about here. So they're suggesting that what Peter is saying is that though these people initially scoffed and laughed, that as they saw then the good deeds and honorable conduct of the followers of Jesus over time, that this eventually led them to ask some questions about God. And then in seeking out the answers to these questions and learning about Christ, they turn to him and find salvation and give glory to God. That's the day of visitation. And I think that's what Peter is getting at here. I think that's the best interpretation. So add all this up and see where this goes. He's saying, we do good, we avoid evil, a powerful witness. Almost no words need to be given in this scenario. And then they talk, initially bad, they see our actions over time. God does something to soften their hearts and eventually draws them to himself. And some of them are going to have a day of visitation experience where they get it And they find Christ and give him the honor and glory. And all I can tell you is that I love this pattern that Peter is drawing out here for us. And I love it because you and I live in an evangelical subculture today, I don't know if you've noticed it, in which we feel like we constantly need to be verbal. Have you ever noticed that? Like Christians constantly need to talk. Da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. Share your faith, do this, defend this, da-da-da. We're constantly told to talk. You watch CNN, some Christians constantly talking. I mean, you read the paper, some Christians constantly talking. And yet along comes Peter, and he challenges us to consider stop talking so much and just act a little bit and allow our actions to do our talking for us. He challenges us to trust God and allow God to draw others to himself through our actions and through their talking. And this certainly doesn't mean, please don't hear me wrong, that we should never be verbal in our faith and talk to others about God. I mean, of course we should. And there are many New Testament passages that tell us to do this. Don't hear that. But listen, in a world that cares much more about actions than speaking, and you and I both know that's true, what Peter is challenging us to hear is to let our actions speak louder than our words ever could. And to realize the utter power of our witness when it's simply backed up by a few signs, maybe cardboard signs or road signs, that have just a very few words but actions behind them. That's what Peter is saying. That that kind of testimony is the most powerful testimony usable in the hands of God. And what a challenge to you and I today. Look up here on the screen, there's a church in uh, Cincinnati that's done some very unique things when it comes to uh, what we're talking about here this morning. Uh, Steve Shogren is the founding pastor of the Vineyard in Cincinnati, and they have a a very unique history, somewhat similar to Scottsdale Bibles. It was a church that was founded back in the early 1980s, and just out of a few families, but over the last 20, 30 years, they've grown to become the size of about Scottsdale Bible, thousands strong. And they are known as, a, as just a powerhouse church, if you will, in the uh, Cincinnati, Ohio area. And yet when Steve first founded this church, he founded it upon a very unique Christian vision. And that was simply that he wanted his church to be known as a church that was much more action-oriented with what he called acts of kindness than just a group of people who talk. 
And so early on, they committed themselves as followers of Jesus to just do random acts of kindness whenever they could, both formally and informally, in their communion, their community. And so early on, they would send out groups of people from the church kind of enlisting in little platoons to just do acts of kindness around the community. And it started to take hold. You might say, well, what kind of things did they do? Well, let me read you a list of things that he shares about in his book called Conspiracy of Kindness. They would go to the local mall during Christmas season and set up a table and offer free gift wrapping for anybody that would want it. Then they would offer free blood pressure screening at the mall during other times of the year. They would hand out bottled water at sporting events. They would go door to door and offer to mow people's lawns or do yard work for free. They would go to local gas stations and offer to clean the bathroom at no charge. They would hand out popsicles on hot days in the park. They would go door to door and offer free carbon monoxide detectors. They would go to carnivals in the Cincinnati area and they would set up a booth to take a free Polaroid of your family at this event. Are you starting to get the idea? They would do shopping assistance for elderly and those in nursing homes. During tax season, they would stand outside the post office and offer free stamps for people coming to mail their tax returns. They'd even do some really wild things if it's over is not enough. They would, they would go to these self-serve car washes, you know, the kind that you just get when you buy a tank of gas, and they'd stand outside the end of it with a towel and dry people's cars. I mean, anything and everything they could do to serve people, whether it was in a meaningful way in the inner city or just some superficial suburban way, they would do it. And anytime anybody asked or anytime that they handed something out, it always had a card, and the card said this. I love this. It said, just showing some kindness in the name of Jesus, Vineyard of Cincinnati. That's it. And they taught their people, don't get too verbal. Don't try to proselytize or anything goofy like that. Just do your act of kindness and just say, just loving you in the name of Jesus. Just an act of kindness in the name of Jesus. And this church just exploded on the scene in the 80s, 90s, and into the century in Cincinnati. People, in fact, send their kids to their conferences from all over the nation to learn how to witness in this way. Steve wrote a book, as you see, they're called The Conspiracy of Kindness. And thousands of people, literally thousands, have been led to Christ through this type of witness. In my last church, we had a couple of people that got kind of excited about this. They had read Steve's book and heard me talk about it once, just like you guys did from the platform here. And so they started a ministry in my last church that ironically was called Acts of Kindness. And, and they would start to do things like this. You know, we'd go out and hand waddle bottles out at the Blossom Time Parade, and we would uh, hand out school kits for low-income families that are sending their kids back to school, and we would do a health fair down in the inner city, just things we could do to serve our community. And they'd even start to do some of those more wacko wild things. I got a call once from the Chagrin Falls Police Department, kid you not, in my office, who said we found a card on one of our meters that says, you know, an act of kindness, something like this, Fellowship Bible Church. I came to find out that a group of people had gone down to the village of Chagrin and were filling expired meters with, with coins, you know, just to, so someone wouldn't get a ticket, and the cops asked us to stop doing that. And uh, they didn't like that. See, that's that persecution part. And so, you know, it just, anything they could do just to show some acts of kindness. And just so you know, because some of you are thinking, I know how you think, you think like me, you think, well, Jamie, this can get kind of goofy. I mean, what's the point? Well, the point is, is that some people were massively affected by this, and we know people came to Christ through this type of witness, because it's unheard of kindness in today's world. The head of this ministry was a, a gal by the name of Joan in my church, 
And, and she was wired like a lot of you are wired, because I hear you talk. You, you say to me that it's hard for you to verbally share your faith, um, that actions come a lot easier, which I think is an awesome thing. And Joan was one of these types of people, and she was always threatened by evangelism, but she said, I can love somebody in the name of Jesus. And so she, she started this ministry, and yet she was the type of woman who, who would just do this stuff naturally. One day she was jogging in her neighborhood, and she noticed a garage sale, and like most people said, I think I'm going to go into that garage sale, and she stopped by and was talking to her neighbor by the name of Connie, found out Connie had been diagnosed at stage four cancer, was going to die, and was doing a garage sale to get rid of some of her possessions. Uh, Joan was moved by this and knew that the family had some financial needs with all the medical bills, and so she got together a bunch of her neighbors and said, why don't we hold a big garage sale for Connie? And so they did, and they raised some money for Connie and gave it to her. As you can imagine, Connie was kind of blown away by this, and so she started just hanging around Joan. Joan started bringing her meals and just loving on her and going over to provide medical care and things of that nature, and, and, uh, and eventually Connie got around to asking the question that, that you can imagine, that's, why are you doing this? Joan started to share with her a bit about her faith in Christ, but, you know, kind of stumbled over her words. I mean, it was tough, and so, so Joan did what, what a lot of you do, too, and that's that she said, well, I, I don't know if I can share with you all the ins and outs of it, but my pastor can. Why don't you go talk to him? And, and so I remember the day where Connie and Joan came into my office, and Joan gave me one of those looks like, you know, hey, go to it, man. This is your open door, you know. And so I, uh, I started to talk to Connie. And, and I am more bold, probably. It's my calling. And so I eventually said, Connie, where are you at spiritually? And came to find out about her, her very uh, colored and and, and downright uh, irreligious past, and uh, I share with her the gospel. N nothing, just share with her the gospel. And I said to her at the end, I said, Connie, do you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior today? And I'll never forget her looking up with me with those hollow eyes. And she said, absolutely, yes. I prayed for Connie to receive Christ that day. She died a few months later, and um, I had the privilege, joy of doing her funeral. And uh, I got to tell you, the ripple effects uh, from Joan's act of kindness to Connie accepting Christ to seeing her husband and son who were devastated by her loss, having the hope of Christ at that funeral, and then all of her friends, many of whom didn't know Christ, I mean, the, the, the witness was profound, all from one act of kindness. I, I don't know about you, but I think Peter is right. I, I think what Peter is saying to us is that if we will allow our actions to be that which drive us, and, and not just our words. In fact, allow actions to outpace our words. That can be a powerful witness in the hands of an almighty God. Uh, one of the gifts that this church has given to you way before I came here is that um, we do a lot behind the scenes to help you know how you can serve and be involved in the community. Uh, there's a table set up out back this morning um, that has a little booklet at, at it that, that it simply says epics on the outside. EPICS stands for Engaging People in Community Service. And it's a booklet that our outreach department put together a couple of years ago that, get this, lets you know about all the different organizations in the Phoenix area that are doing good in the name of Christ and how you might be able to get involved in them. It's a resource for how you can serve more if you choose to do that. Maybe with the mission down in Phoenix, or maybe on the Indian Reservation, or maybe with single moms just a way that you can start to be involved in acts of kindness. Or maybe if you don't take advantage of that, how about just blooming where you're planted? I mean, one of the cool things I love about being your pastor is that all of you, I mean, you're the ministers of the church, all of you are involved 
in this world week in and week out, and you have such profound spheres of influence in your neighborhood, with your friends, with your family, I mean, with your service providers. And I just dream some days in my office, well, what if each one of us just allowed our actions to drive us in our sphere of influence? Maybe for those of us who aren't naturally all that patient, to allow patience to drive us. Maybe for some of you who aren't all that kind, and some of you aren't, maybe to allow your, your kindness to start driving you. Or maybe for some of you who, who aren't very good at, at helping other people because you're just so busy in your high-powered job, maybe allow acts of kindness and help to drive you. I'll never forget my first church internship way back in Chicago. They turned from the 80s to the 90s. They put out a big magazine, kind of like Scottsdale Bible does with our compass thing, and the cover of one of these magazines showed this huge picture window of the church with this little guy dressed in kind of a business suit, like, you know, suit pants like I am today in this shirt. And this look cool today? Anyways, and uh, dressed in that, and he was just washing windows, just washing windows. And you read the inside story, and it blew you away because you realized that this guy was the CEO of a huge company in Chicago, multi-billion dollar company, and yet his contribution to the kingdom is that every Saturday morning he'd go to Willow Creek Community Church and wash windows. And the reason he would do that is to remind himself of the servant nature of Christianity, who he is in Christ, and it was his way of contributing to the kingdom. What, what a profound thing to do. Maybe that's the road that God has for some of you. But whatever the road is, be encouraged in this way, that as you do good, as you avoid the things that God wants you to avoid, that that's a great witness. And that though they might talk, let them talk. Because as you add consistency to your testimony, they're going to see that over time. And mark my words, mark Peter's words, God is going to use that. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. As usual, Lord, it, it's eminently practical, life-giving and relevant. I can't believe people have the gall to call it boring because it's not. And Father, today as we've just plumbed the depths of just a couple of, of verses, we realize, Lord, the clarion call that you give to us through your servant Peter to be men and women of action more than we are of words. Lord, we know words matter. But we know that we need to share verbal witness. But Lord, we also realize that our actions are so profoundly usable in your hands when it comes to building your kingdom. And so, Lord, I pray for these people here today because i got to believe that the vast majority of us really have tender hearts and a desire to serve you and be used of you and make our lives count for the kingdom. I pray, God, that you would use us in profound ways as we hear your call, as we become men and women more of action than necessarily verbal. Father, I pray that you'd help us to find our way in, in being kind and being loving being servant-oriented. Help us to not be afraid to take up the serving towel as Jesus did and wash a few feet in our spheres of influence. Father, talk about symbols. We come to a time now where we're going to celebrate communion of the Lord's Supper. We pray that as we enter into this time that you receive our worship and focus us on Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as many of you know, um, we celebrate the first Sunday of each month, what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. In just a minute, we're going to hand out to you some bread and some juice. We're going to ask you to hold it so that we can all partake together. But make no mistake, this bread and juice symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It was his last meal before he uh, was arrested and crucified, and he used it as an object lesson to say, this is my body, this is my blood given and broken, for, given and for you. 
and now to eat in remembrance of me. And so if you want to focus on the core of your faith now, why God has forgiven you in the first place, why any of these people could get up and turn the cards that they did, this is the time now to realize that Christ came for you and that he loves you and he gave his life for you. And we have to receive and follow him. And so as the elements are handed out now, would you uh, just hold them and then I'll come up and lead us in a time of partaking together.
So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating, a simple Passover meal made of unleavened, unleavened bread. He said, this bread is my body. It's given for you. And so eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup that they were drinking. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins. And whenever you drink, remember me. Indeed, our Heavenly Father, we remember your Son Jesus in this moment, and hopefully in many more moments of our lives. And we remember the sacrifice that he paid for the forgiveness of our sins, and we gladly bend the knee and follow him. Thank you for the joy and the peace and the purpose that comes through the life we have in Christ. Thank you that you have washed us as white as snow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.